From the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation, this is the Prairie Rome Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Welcome to Prairie Rome Companion. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and this is the 15th episode of Prairie Rome Companion. Uh, there's been a little bit of a, bit of a hiatus since the last episode. Uh, been a little bit busy here in the diocese, and hopefully we'll be able to get back on track here uh, in the second part of, as we approach the second part of 2007, uh, getting more back to the, the weekly um, episodes of Prayer Room Companion. In this episode, we uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to share with you an interview that I did recently with Dr. Alan Schreck from Franciscan University of Steubenville on Vatican II. And uh, Dr. Schreck and I spoke about I asked Dr. Shrek about uh, how Vatican II came to be called and uh, what the documents are about and, and what the, the typical Catholic layperson can do to better, under, better understand Vatican II. So at this point, I will ask you just to sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview. And now we have uh, Dr. Shrek joining us from Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, Dr. Shrek, thanks for being here. You're welcome, uh, Doctor Shrek. Is uh, Doctor Alan Shrek is uh, chair of theology, the chair of theology department at Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he has been teaching theology as a professor of theology for uh, thirty years. I'm happy to say that I had him as one of my students. Uh, uh, sorry, as one of my professors when I studied in Steubenville, and uh, he, th- one of the courses I had with him was the the topic that we're talking about today, which is uh, Vatican II. Dr. Shrek, happy to have you here to be talking about something that I know that's very close to your heart. Good. You're welcome, Chris. It's great to be with you today. Uh, what I thought we'd do, Dr. Shrek, is over the next half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, is just sort of go through the council in terms of its history and, and then the, what the council itself, uh, the documents itself uh, themselves refer to, and then the reception and implementation of the council and what the average Catholic uh, layperson can do today to better understand the council and make it a part of their own life and the life of their parish in whatever way possible. Uh, and so I thought we'd begin, if, if you could just talk a little bit about the history of the council. How did it come to be? Uh, who called it? When was it held? And so on. Okay. Well, Chris, um, to really understand uh, Vatican II, uh, a couple of things first. that uh, It is what we call an ecumenical council, and there have only been 21 of these in the Church's history. And uh, in the last... Uh, uh, 500 years, there have been only three, the Council of Trent uh, and in the uh, 16th century, and then the, the uh, First Vatican Council in the mid to late uh, uh, 19th century, and then Vatican II. And so we might say that this is just a monumental landmark, uh, uh, that this does not happen frequently when uh, one of the Holy Fathers uh, calls uh, a council of the, all the bishops of the Catholic Church, which is what ecumenical means in this context. So John the Twenty-Third, blessed John the Twenty-Third, was the one who uh, called the council, and uh, for most people said it was just totally a surprise, and he himself said it was like a, a ray of divine light. The Lord really uh, gave him an inspiration uh, to call the council. And, and yet John XXIII was also an astute observer of church history, and he realized that the world was very much at sort of a turning point. Uh, first of all, the Catholic Church was at a turning point, because for the past 150 years before the Council, the Catholic Church intended to be more um, critical of all of the currents of modern thought, there, and there were a lot to be critical about the Enlightenment, uh, introduced sort of a seculariza- secularization in society, a uh, turning away from God, uh, and also the the the, uh, the political situation was different. Monarchies had ended, the, the the papal states were gone. The Pope was had lost all his political power, you might say, and so the Catholic Church was sort of looking at the modern world, and uh, much of it was was sort of negative in light of of faith. Uh, questioning and challenging revelation and faith, and also the Catholic Church in terms of her former grandeur as a great you know, political force in the world was now reduced to, to basically no power in that sphere. And the tendency of the Church had been to sort of um, 
be very critical about the modern world. And Pius IX, uh, Blessed Pius IX, had introduced in the 19th century uh, a syllabus of errors of the modern world. Pope St. Pius X, at the beginning of the 20th century, had issued a condemnation of what he called modernism, which was sort of a giving in to sort of modern currents that were against faith and revelation. So when John XXIII called this council, you know, many people thought, well, why are we calling this council? Are we going to condemn, you know, some new errors or heresies? And um, But John XXIII saw that uh, the world was very much at a turning point uh, in terms of a lot of things that we're very familiar with, with uh, uh, technological progress and science had, had really reshaped the world. And also, as I said, the political situation was changing. Democracies were on the rise. And he felt like it was important to speak for the Church to sort of present herself in this new era, a new age of technology and a new world of sort of secularization, but to give a very positive presentation about the message of the Gospel uh, in the Church in the mid-20th century. And um, most of the bishops at the time sort of wondered, well, why do we need a council? But he sought their advice. He asked all the bishops of the world to give input on what should the Church be addressing at this council. And uh, before long, he had about 17 volumes of uh, suggestions, uh, and it became very clear that many of the bishops said, yes, we do need to restate and to present who the, the Catholic Church is and what our faith is in light of the many changes in, in the world and society. And uh, when he, he called the council in 1959, he announced the council in 1959 on the feast of uh, the conversion of St. Paul. And as I said, most of the bishops were sort of surprised and even shocked. Mm-hmm. But as he pursued this, um, they gradually came to see that this council could really address many of these, these pressing issues. And of course, this was the age of Sputnik and the space race and the Cold War and the beginning of what sometimes is called the sexual revolution and the rise of modern feminism. And there were a lot of trends in society which were causing people confusion and wondering, well, what are we to make of this? How are we to relate to this new world of, uh, of power politics and whatnot? So he, he, and also there were pastoral concerns. How do we address the, the pastoral needs of the church in, a, in, in this global society that is becoming ever closer together because of communication and transportation advances? So he said, council, a council will be a chance for all the bishops to, to seek the Holy Spirit uh, guide, his guidance on, on what we should say to the world today. So that's what the Council did. It began in 1962, um, its first session, and in his opening speech to the Council in 1962, he, he basically said, we, we don't need a Council just to restate in the same language and terms what everyone is familiar with, but we need to address uh, these issues in sort of a new way. It, but he really stressed it would be a continuity with the past, that we, with the Council would de- defend the sacred deposit of faith, of revelation that had been always entrusted to her by Christ through the apostles, through the bishops, through the ages. So it wasn't to, just to change everything, but he said that we need a deeper um, analysis, a new articulation, a new way of presenting the faith so that modern people today, uh, mid-20th century people, could really understand it and really understand it as good news and really understand that the Church is, uh, to use a 70s phrase, relevant <laughs> to uh, yeah, right. that it has something to say to this new, new, new world uh, situation. And so that's what the bishops began to undertake. And over the course of, uh, well, from 1962 to 1965, there were four sessions of the Council, uh, each convening like in October, September, October, and ending in December. So the Council itself... Uh, the bishops were gathered for uh, for about three or four months each fall, but between the sessions they did a lot of work uh, in uh, co- commissions. Uh, and and prior between 1959 and 1962, uh, many drafts of documents were presented for consideration. And finally, when the council began, they started working on them, uh, and and they were very the vast in the scope of what was being addressed, from liturgy to revelation to the nature of the Church to the mission of the Church to 
social communications, education. Uh, this council basically, probably of all councils in the church's history, perhaps had the widest scope of 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 interest in addressing uh, both things within the church, but also things uh, going on in the world. So um, the bishops met, and very soon they discovered this would not just be a, a short council that with the agenda that they themselves had expressed, they would be looking at many different areas and, uh, of pastoral and, and theological concern. And so they went over this for till December 8, 1965, when the council ended. Uh, by the end of it, they had promulgated 16 documents, four constitutions uh, and uh, 12 other documents, decrees and declarations that addressed the, the whole scope of uh, what does the Catholic Church stand for? What does she have to say to the modern world? How are Catholics to be in the world today? So that's sort of an overview of the Council and why it was called. Okay. Some people, um, as, as I'm sure uh, you've read and heard, have have uh, argued that there wasn't, or, or, or wondered, if maybe this Council was, was unusual in that there was no immediate or obvious crisis uh, for which the council was called to respond to. I think a lot of Catholics who, who know a little bit about church history uh, think maybe of, of the Council of Trent, which you re- referred to in the 16th century, which w- was obviously a response uh, to the Protestant Reformation as well as uh, to issues within the church that needed to be addressed, that the Reformation itself uh, had, had begun in many ways to address. Is this is that an accurate statement that there was no obvious crisis in light of what you just said uh, that there was no obvious crisis um, that, Vatic- that that blessed Pope John called Vatican II to respond to and the and regardless of the answer is that a unique council in that manner? Yes. Well, uh, to answer the question of whether crisis, what does that mean? Was there a heresy, a particular heresy? Uh, that was being uh, promulgated, such as, you know, the various challenges to Catholic faith from the Protestant Reformation. No, in the sense there was not a single, like, or major theological issue like justification by faith or sola scriptura. There was no single theological challenge to Catholic doctrine that was going on. And many councils were called in response to doctrinal questions, like the first four councils of the Church in the, in, in, um, you know, the, the fourth through the fifth, sixth, seventh century. The, they, those were all dealing with crises that were heresies or doctrinal challenges. So there wasn't a specific doctrinal challenge to the Church. Now, other councils have been... Uh, well, other, another reason that ecumenical councils have been called are, are for reform of the Church, for addressing pastoral issues of discipline, um, one could say, well, Vatican II wasn't basically just trying to correct some abuse uh, in discipline. It wasn't called because there was an evident, um, just sort of an obvious um, set of uh, abuses that needed a disciplinary correction. So in that sense, there was no crisis of discipline, and there was no direct crisis of doctrine. I would say the the crisis that John the Twenty Third saw, and it perhaps is sort of a different meaning of crisis, is the crisis of, um, as I was indicating earlier, an entirely new era, a way, especially in the Western world, that that faith was being challenged. It it might be said that really the crisis of the Enlightenment, the crisis of unbelief, of atheism, of questioning uh, authority of questioning religious authority and, and divine authority uh, that had begun in the in the Protestant er, that had begun in the Enlightenment after the Protestant Reformation. The First Vatican Council tried to address that somewhat by uh, affirming papal infallibility and also a, a constitution of Vatican I on the relationship of faith and reason or faith and revela- revelation and reason, um, and and it made a beginning. But it was only one short document. But it seemed like John the Twenty Third saw that the crisis of sort of a crisis of faith in the Western world uh, was was really emerging as a key issue. Uh, this, for example, one issue that was dealt with at Vatican II in Gaudium et Spes on the pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world 
was the crisis of systematic atheism. Uh, never before had atheism been sort of promoted and widespread as, as just a common way of, of thinking, to believe there is no God or to believe there is no evidence of God. And that was, I believe that's a crisis. And I think that there were some crises that, um, that John the 23rd said were brewing and that in a way they, were, they weren't like, in, like one reformer standing up and saying, I oppose the church, but you might say the whole climate of questioning authority, of unbelief, was sort of coming to a head. Plus the idea of uh, sort of a, a modern heresy that's sort of not specific, but the idea of, from science that, well, we can do through science and technology, we don't really need the church or faith or belief anymore. We can handle the crises and challenges of the modern world. And that, that sort of a human hubris of pride saying that we don't really need faith anymore because we have, we have uh, science, we have technology. That, I think, is a, uh, something that was a growing thing, and it wasn't just one person getting up and saying, uh, you know, let's, let's leave the church because we don't need her anymore. But I think it was a common sentiment that, you know, the church is outmoded. Uh, faith in this, you know, sort of medieval or ancient belief is good for people of previous times, but no longer really needed in the modern world. That really is a, a, a symptom of what I call modernism or mm-hmm. modernity that actually St. Pius X had begun to address, but was still a part of the climate. So I think there was a crisis, and also there was sort of a crisis that, with this, that people began to look at the Catholic Church as just sort of um, always just being, speaking negatively about new things in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And many people were saying, we don't really need to be part of an institution that always just is seeming to condemn everything new. And I think John the Twenty Third said that's a crisis too. That if people have gotten the impression that the church is only going to have a council when we want to condemn something, you know, uh, you could say, well, even the mentality. Why do we? Why do we need a crisis if there isn't something to condemn? Mm-hmm. You know, why not say let's have a council to give a positive agenda on where we stand in light of new changes and new challenges, but to do something that isn't primarily going to be a council just to condemn things, but to give a positive vision of the faith in the modern world. And I think John the Twenty Third had a very prophetic sense. I think he was like a prophet in his time, saying we needed that sort of a positive statement. Maybe there wasn't sort of a, an immediate crisis, but it was a thing that was had been growing of modernism, of uh, unbelief, of the Enlightenment, that really needed to be addressed, but not just by a condemnation of the modern world or these, you know, of unbelief or atheism, but something which was giving a, a positive alternative to say, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. in this new world situation? What is the positive thing that Christians and Catholics have to say to uh, moder- people who live in this new modern technological society? So, oh, that's a long-winded answer. No, the <laughs> Maybe not a crisis in the traditional sense, but uh, a truly uh, something that I think could be seen as a broader crisis in Western society. And I, I might add one thing, mm-hmm. and that is also the, the, the expansion of Christianity and the Catholic Church into, the, into the, what is sometimes called the Third World, into Asia, into Africa, into you know, new areas where the faith was sort of just being planted. And that was a challenge, too. To The Catholic Church had been so rooted in uh, Europe for so many centuries in Western culture, and I think that was another issue that was addressed by the Council, which maybe, again, wasn't a crisis, but was a real question, like, could we have a church, that, uh, a universal Catholic Church, that really uh, took not just a European perspective, but a perspective of the whole world, and was so that the Catholic Church would really be Catholic, be really universal. And even though that wasn't like an immediate crisis, it was a growing question mm-hmm. as you know, as the the faith was planted in so many uh, diverse uh, cultures in the world. And I, as you're 
talking about that, the, the growth of the church, I, I would imagine, I mean, the, the, the number of bishops, uh, in light of the growth of the church, the number of bishops who are president of Vatican II, just in, in that sense, the immensity and the scope, just in terms of numbers of the, the virtually, I mean, 99 plus percent of, of the Catholic hierarchy gathered together in one location in St. Peter's in Rome, that in itself, I would imagine for those who, who uh, were taking part and also watching this at the time, must have been a very impressive spectacle. Yes, well, there were there were twenty five hundred over twenty five hundred bishops, and for many of them, this is the first time that they had really rubbed shoulders with, you know, bishops from from all the continents of the world and and all the nations of the world. And uh, John, Pope John Paul II <coughs> called the council the seminary of the Holy Spirit. It was sort of like we were saying going back to school. In a way, not that you know these are bishops; they've been to the seminary. But it was like the Holy Spirit was teaching them through each other, through their consultations, through their listening to each other, you know, for council speeches, and really getting a, a, a sense of the the true universality of the church. It, it did have a profound impact on the bishops themselves, and um, and those who are members of the Roman Curia had the. You know, they learn much about the perspectives of bishops in far-flung regions of the world and uh, heard them firsthand. So certainly God was working through this to uh, to sort of give the bishops an even greater vision of the, the universality of the Church, and, and it did change them. And uh, John Paul speaks of a debt he felt that the bishops had to pay to the Holy Spirit for giving them this opportunity and, and teaching them so much uh, through each other. Yeah, yeah, it, it must have been just awe-inspiring for for them to be a part of that. And then, as you said, I mean, what they had to now do as bishops in returning to their to their local churches, to their diocese, and 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 carry on the work that the council had set to do. Which leads me to my next question. You alluded to the documents. One, sure, sure. Another dimension that of universality is, uh, I should say that. John Twenty-Third had a great vision also of this council of being a council of unity. He wanted uh, ultimately to for unity in the whole world, but he really had a vision of Christian unity. And one of the other exciting things about, and new things about this council, which is totally unprecedented for an ecumenical council, is he invited uh, observers from uh, the Orthodox Church, from all the different varieties of Protestant and other you know, other churches of the Reformation. And they that had actually been done at Vatican I, but they didn't attend. But in this case, they attended, and they actually were given a place of honor at the council. So it was a council to really uh, break down barriers of disunity as, as a way of testifying to the Catholic Church's desire for this unity, and that as all churches would come together, eventually, you know, and it's not yet accomplished, but we're beginning. But this would be also a sign to the world of Christ. As Jesus said, you'll know my disciples, they will know you're my disciples by your love for each other. And his prayer for unity at the Last Supper, may they all be one, Father, as you and I are one. Mm -hmm. I think unity was another theme of the Council, and it was also part of the spectacle to have, uh, as they gathered to have these ecumenical observers given a place of honor and they didn't vote at the council, but they gave input, and they, they reflected, and they met with bishops, and they spoke about their perspective, and it gave the bishops a, a, another dimension of the consideration of the need for Christian unity to bring about a greater unity in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, I mean, again, I think leads us to the, the question of the immediate fruit of the, the council, which is the documents themselves. You alluded to them, four constitutions and 12 other decrees and declarations. Could you, uh, I know this is a daunting question, could you just sort of briefly or in summary uh, give us an idea of what uh, the documents of the council, of the council themselves uh, address? Sure. Well, I could do that. Most uh, observers that the central document of the Council was the document on the, the dogmatic constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, which means light to the nations in Latin. And this was sort of the Church's, the Church decided we've got to present who we are, what is the nature of the Church. And it talked about the Church as a mystery of God's grace, 
but also the church is the people of God. This seemed to be a central concept of uh, that that came forth from the council that the church is not primarily just a, an institution or a you know a hierarchy only. It, the church is hierarchical, but the church is first and foremost God's people, and that it it is made up of clergy, laity, religious, and it also includes the whole communion of saints, the church living and dead, the purgatory and heaven, and it gave sort of a broad idea of the church is not primarily to be thought of primarily as just a, 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 an institution, a, a hierarchy, but as, as God's people. And that was a main theme. And the core of that document was the call to holiness, that all Christians, all Catholics, are called to be saints, and not just religious, not just priests, not just bishops, but lay people are equally called to the fullness of Christian life, to the perfection of charity. And I think this was sort of revolutionary to say, hey, uh, there are no second-class citizens in the Church. Every Christian, every Catholic uh, possesses the call to, to holiness and, and that we together are to reflect the image of Christ in the world. Then there was a document explicitly on the mission of the Church. That document, Lumen Gentium, was sort of on the nature of the Church. But on the council floor, one of the cardinals got up one day and said, we don't have a plan. We're, we're, we're here considering how we are to fit in the modern world, but there's no document on the mission of the Church in the modern world. So they, they said that this constitution called Gaudium et Spes, which is Latin for joy and hope, the first three words of the document, were to present, the, the, it's called the pastoral constitution on the Church in the modern world. And this is sort of a mission statement of the Church. What is our mission in the world? And um, it, it, it basically begins by analyzing the signs of the times, both the, the hopeful signs but also the signs of crisis, and said, we as followers of Christ are not separated from this modern world, but we're part of it, and we have a mission in it from Christ, and that is to spread the gospel by word and deed, evangelization, but also to address the concerns of the world social problems. So at the second part of that document, they had addressed things like problems in politics and economics, marriage and family life, uh, war and peace. But the foundation of that is the dignity of the human person, that, that the church exists and to promote that each person is created in the image and likeness of God, has an eternal destiny, and that all of the church's social teaching, so to speak, is rooted in uh, the, the, the inestimable value of each individual person in God's plan and that societies and action exist to promote the well-being, the true well-being and the, the, the dignity of each person. So uh, our, our, our late great Holy Father John Paul II was a young bishop and he helped uh, draft that document and, and it became really uh, central in his teaching during his pontificate uh, as carrying out that as uh, the dignity of the person. So that was a that was a second constitution, sort of a complement to the the, the the one on Lumigentium on the nature of the church. Um, two other constitutions. One was on divine revelation, the dogmatic constitution constitution on divine revelation, which is Dei Verbum, the Word of God, and that was dealing with the issue of 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 understanding our need to be guided by the Word of God, both in the Scripture and in sacred tradition. Now, the Protestants had said, you know, Scripture, the Bible, is our basis, and this agreed that the Bible is, is revealed and is our guide, but for Catholics, that the Bible is, is complemented by another source of revel, a form of revelation, which is sacred scripture, or sacred tradition, and that sacred tradition and Scripture are together the Word of God and are to be interpreted, uh, helped by the work of Bible scholars and, and, uh, and historians and, and, and theologians. But ultimately, uh, that service of theologians is to be discerned and tested by the teaching office of the Church, the magisterium. And so it's like it's it said that it's important that we study the Scripture using uh, modern uh, tools of research, but that ultimately uh, it's still the, 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 uh, the bishops and, the, and the, uh, the, the priests in union with them and with the Pope who are the authoritative teachers of the Word. And it really gave emphasis on 
how our the preaching of the gospel needed to be at the center of the liturgy and the center of the church's life, that the mission of uh, spreading the good news had to be really rooted in a, a deep knowledge of Scripture. And again, not just for the clergy, but even that lay people were supposed to be very familiar with by reading the the Bible and the and being familiar with the tradition of the church, the lives of the saints and things like that, so that was really um, sort of a, a wake up call for Catholics who had their dusty Bibles up on the shelves, that they got to get it down and really hear what God's Word had to speak to them, and and to know our tradition. The 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 fourth Constitution, and I stress these these are called the four pillars of the Council. Uh, was the document on sacred liturgy, the, the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. And of course, most Catholics, if you ask them, well, what did Vatican II do? They would say, oh, it, it changed the Mass. The Mass was no longer Latin, and the priest no longer faced the altar, or at the, you know, at, at the back of the church, but now they turned around the altar, and the priest faced the people, and we, we now have uh, liturgy in our mother tongue, in the vernacular. And... Um, changes in music and, and, and even art. And the Constitution did call for, the call for actually what it called for was what it said, the full active conscious participation of all the faithful in the sacred liturgy, that the liturgy is the worship not just of the priest, but of the people of God. And the minister, of course, is essential and central in, in offering uh, the, the sacrifice of the Mass and the other sacraments. But but lay people are also, with the priest and religious as well, offering the this, this sacrifice with Christ. And so it was a very Christocentric, Christ-centered document. It also encouraged a, a fuller participation in an actual way of, of really entering into the liturgy, which was the main goal. And, and the other things were sort of um, ways of helping people enter into the liturgy. It wasn't the main thrust of the document to just to change the language or to change the way the altar faced, which actually wasn't even in the document. But um, there were a lot of post-conciliar documents that carried out the idea of uh, a liturgy more like the primitive liturgy of the Church, which was much more, in a sense, streamlined and, um, and participatory in some ways. So those were the constitutions. And the rest of the documents seemed to go deeper and to sort of spell out specific aspects of the Church's life and mission, like there are documents about the, the laity, uh, a whole document on the apostolate of the laity, which sort of filled out what began in the Constitution on the Church. There's also documents of Vatican II on the bishop's role, and that was very important because the bishops saw themselves working with the Pope and with each other, in a, in a way called collegiality, in a collegial way, saying basically we're, the Church is not just a monarchy run just by the Pope, but the Church has a hierarchical structure that is led by all of the successors of the Apostles, all the bishops. And of course Vatican II itself was a, a beautiful expression of the Church being uh, taught and led by all of her pastors, all of the bishops, with the Pope. And that document was important for that. And then a document on the priests, their essential role, a document on the renewal of religious life, which was uh, needed in some ways, uh, and so a document guiding the proper renewal of religious life, a document on priestly formation, how priests in this new world situation and new cultures could receive a solid education, real emphasis on that, on the pastoral and the spiritual formation of priests. Um, then documents on uh, Eastern Catholic churches, how the Catholic Church was not just the Latin Rite, the Roman Catholic Church, but also that there's an equal dignity of Eastern churches, of the Byzantine and other rites of the Catholic Church, that um, are, even though they're numerically smaller, have equal dignity with the, the Latin and the Roman, the Roman Rite. And then there's uh, then there was the document sort of about the mission of the Church in the world, the, the, the decree on ecumenism. I mentioned Christian unity, so they had a whole decree uh, specifying how we could seek unity with other Christians. They have a, a document, a uh, declaration on religious liberty, in which the Catholic Church proclaimed that, uh, that all people had a right to worship God as they were led by their conscience, uh, and that the Catholic Church did not want to repress authentic, uh, you know, legitimate freedom of people to express their beliefs and worship in the way they desired. 
while not compromising our, our, our belief that the fullness of truth and, and, and religious life is in the Catholic Church. But we wanted to respect the freedom of people to seek God as they are led by conscience uh, within the limits of, of, of proper order uh, in society. And then there's a document on our relationship with non-Christians. Uh, in the past, that we sort of only viewed non-Christians as someone who, you know, well, you don't know Christ, perhaps you're not saved. We, we do acknowledge that there's the possibility of salvation outside of the Catholic Church, and that even some religions, um, especially religions that really share a, a richness of God's revelation, such as our Jewish brothers and sisters in the Judaism, possesses um, real religious truth and value, not the fullness that is in the Catholic Church or in Christianity, but they do possess many valuable things that we need to learn about through dialogue. So it sort of invited the Church not to sort of, again, shut out the world, but to realize, you know, you know, there are millions of people who belong to these other religions. We have to begin to, uh, in a deep, fuller way, uh, learn about them in dialogue with them, and in that dialogue certainly present the, the good news of Jesus Christ uh, as being uh, a, 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 a hope for the whole world, not just for, for Christians. So, and then we get to a couple of specific, oh, there's also a decree on the missionary activity of the Church, speaking of the mission, uh, sort of complementing these. Yes, we respect religious freedom. Yes, we respect the good and true things in other religions. Uh, but our mission from Christ is to bring the gospel. So there's a document on the decree on the missionary activity of the Church and really fostering uh, a real new fervor in evangelization and, and witnessing the gospel throughout the world and realizing that it has to be embodied in the form of different cultures, as I mentioned, that um, the Church uh, is not just imposing Western culture where we go and bring the Gospel, but we, we have to really let the Gospel manifest itself in, in, the, in the form of different cultures, as long as those forms are you know, not opposed to the teaching of Christ and the Church. And finally, there are two short documents that were totally novel, that the Church and ecumenical councils had never addressed before. One was on, um, well, the, the main one was on social communications, and that was a decree uh, basically uh, telling the importance of the use of the means of, of media, the modern media, we call it, they call it social communications, and basically saying we these media had to be used by Christians and by the Church to, to proclaim the Gospel, but also that there could be other uses of media, but we have to discern, uh, you know, what is of truth and value in the media. A lot of practical things in that about uh, our media use. And then finally, a document I said was just totally new, but it really, in a way, isn't. Is Christian education. They they had a document that wasn't just. It included the discussion of Catholic schools and Catholic teachers, but it, and uh, but it really focused on all of the means of education. Uh, in the modern world, and that the Catholic Church has to uh, seek to work with uh, government, with uh, even with public institutions, to promote education, but also asserting the right of the Church to educate in the faith. That uh, we have to have freedom to uh, to make sure every Catholic has the right to receive religious instruction, uh, even if they must you know, by circumstances, must attend a public school, but really trying to promote Catholic education. So you can see in, uh, in uh, about 10 minutes here, I've tried to cover uh, all 16 of them. Uh, but I, I think the important thing is a broad vision, a positive vision, saying the Church uh, is, is part of this modern world, uh, and, and yet we're, we're, we're not, you know, to be conformed to the, 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 the lies or the distortions of truth, but the Church has that freedom to, to live as a witness to Christ and really wants to reach out to be a lumigentium, a light to the nations. That's sort of the goal of all of these documents, is to let the light shine brighter as we renew religious life and priesthood and the, uh, the bishops get a fuller sense of their role and lay people get a sense of their responsibility in this people of God and that our mission is clear. It was uh, the goal of the council was really to give that sort of an impelling vision of going out in the world as a light to the world, uh, and re beginning by renewing ourselves and getting clear 
you know, who we are as the Catholic Church. So that's a little okay. summary I could give you. Sure, that. sure. Now, and and in light of that, so we have we have the documents of the Council, um, which are obviously the, the the crucial and central thing sometimes though since the council we've heard about the spirit of the council can you just yeah. explain what's usually meant by that and and how it relates to the documents yes uh, well we have to acknowledge that in the 40 years since the council is closed that it, it hasn't always been smooth sailing you know that it's it seems like very an exciting vision but you know there have been a lot of controversies and a lot of it is centered about what is the real teaching of Vatican II. Uh, sometimes that phrase, the spirit of Vatican II, was used as sort of taking things, well, Vatican II says we need to conform to the modern world, that we have to be up to date, we have to change things. And it almost uh, sounded to people like, well, what Vatican II says is let's change everything, you know, and it became almost like change for the sake of change, which is not what the Council taught. So. One thing that 20 years after the Council, John Paul II called a synod, and they said you can't separate the spirit of Vatican II from the letter, which means what the Council actually taught. And so I think it's important. I do think that there is sort of a true, I like to call it maybe the vision of Vatican II, uh, to distinguish it from some sort of a false spirit. But I do think there is a sort of a spirit or a vision of Vatican II that is rooted in the actual teaching of the Council. So I think what we have to do is if we want to know what Vatican II really, what is the true spirit or the true vision, we have to go back to those documents and to read them. I know uh, in the Jubilee year of 2000, John Paul II, when he met with the laity, he gave all uh, the lay people who were sort of representing all the laity, he gave them a little present, and he gave them, the present was a copy of the documents of Vatican II. James Hitchcock, a historian, said that the documents of Vatican II are, are among the great unread documents of modern times. That you know, everyone has an impression of what Vatican II taught, but few people are familiar with really what they said. So I think that it is important that um, for us uh, today to become familiar with the actual teaching of the Council, because this is what the Holy Spirit inspired. He he guided the bishops as the Holy Spirit always does, and. Uh, this is such a, a great event as an ecumenical council. We have to, we really owe it to ourselves if we want to say, well, I'm a Vatican II Catholic, or if, if one says, I'm not a Vatican II Catholic, they, or have trouble with Vatican II, a lot of even the people who have rejected the council or questioned what the council taught are questioning things based on false information or a false impression. So I think all Catholics, if they're serious about their faith, ought to become familiar with the Council's teaching, what it really said, because it really are, these are the teachings which so much shape our understanding of what it means to be a Catholic today. And to do that, you could read the 16 documents themselves. By the way, sometimes people see the, the copies they have, like the Austin Flannery edition, and it's so thick, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're not, people aren't aware that actually in some of these editions of Vatican II, they not only have the 16 documents, but they include a lot of other documents that were called post-conciliar. And I think that sometimes confuses people because they think, I can't read those mm -hmm. pages. And they realize when they actually start reading it, it's not 800 pages, but maybe, you know, a couple hundred pages of the actual documents. Um, so I think I, I encourage people to read the documents. Uh, I also wrote a book myself called Vatican II, The Crisis and the Promise, which gives a little introduction to Vatican II. Um, but I actually, I have a chapter which is sort of question-answer going through what did the Council teach. And uh, I think it's not a substitute for reading the documents, but like if adult study groups or individuals want to sort of get into the documents, it's good to have a book like that. There are other good books out on this line, but my book um, from St. Anthony Messenger, Vatican II, The Crisis and the Promise, is a good one to sort of introduce you to the documents and to summarize in an accurate way in a readable way, the key themes. And I think if you sort of read the documents maybe with a companion source like this, it can help uh, you know you understand them a little better. But even though uh, the, the documents are very readable, people think, oh, I'll never understand these very complex church documents. You start reading them, and actually they're really not that hard to understand. The bishops wanted to write the documents in common language, and they 
they're, you know, it takes a little effort, but it's it's not something that there's all sorts of technical philosophy or terms that people won't understand in these documents. They're really pretty clear. So I, I that's what I would say. Get the, the true meaning of Vatican II by reading the documents or other sources that accurately present what the documents taught. Is there an order that you'd recommend people read the documents, or ones that you begin with? You've alluded, I mean, the, the import, the pill, as you called them, the pillars of the the council, the constitutions. Begin with one of them in particular, or? Well, um, I would say that the um, the ones that I think are really most accessible are the, di- the 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 dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, and also the pastoral constitution in the church in the modern world. Um, the the one on the liturgy is is beautiful, especially in the first and second chapters of it. But later, it, it basically it basically it's a lot about well, the bishops authorize commissions to revise this and this and this. And so, I would say the first couple chapters of of the uh, Constitution on Sacred Liturgy are are especially good. And actually, there's a lot in there later about the liturgical year, praying the liturgy of the hours. So. I would say start with the two constitutions on the church, the the dogmatic and the pastoral constitution. Then, if you want to take a peek at the beginning of of, um, of the liturgy document, then after that, um, of course, Dei Verbum is really about the importance of the Word of God. And I think what's more more most important about that document is the call for Catholics to really begin studying the Scripture. And right as a result of that document. There are so many Catholic Bible study aids that are now available that weren't available, uh, at, you know, in 1960 and 70. So I, I would say, what instead of reading just reading De Verbum on the, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, I think if you study Scripture and start reading the lives of the saints and and things like that, you're gonna. You, that's really what the document is calling for, for really understanding uh, your faith by reading Scripture and getting familiar with some of the tradition of the church through the history of the church or through reading lives of the saints. So I would say, um, and the other constitutions and documents are sort of as you have interest, you know, if you're mm-hmm. interested in, you know, what's the role of the bishops? Well, you know, I would say after you've read those, looked at those constitutions, uh, one document is the one on the decree on ecumenism, uh, I think is important in the in the sense of to understand how important it is for us to be seeking unity with other Christians. And that document does give some useful guidelines of, of how important this is and, and how we are to approach other Christians. So uh, the decree on ecumenism needs to be interpreted a little bit, but it's, it's a good document for reminding us of our call to seek unity with other Christians. And actually, the, the, the very short document on Christian on the means of social communications, intermerifica. It's very short, but it, it has some really good practical advice in the first part about, you know, monitoring, uh, you know, your, your, your use of the media and, and, and thinking about how you're using the media. And they didn't have the Internet back then, but even some of the principles about, uh, about media use are, are, are in there. So I would say read the constitutions first, and then the other documents... Um, as your sort of interest uh, uh, dictates. Okay. Now, as we draw the uh, this interview to a close, is there anything else that you would like to stress? I mean, obviously, reading the documents, as you said, is so crucial. Anything else that you that you would think uh, that it'd be good for the average uh, Catholic layperson to keep in mind or to know? Well, I think we're that we're called by Christ to uh, through our baptism and the confirmation and. Uh, to be witnesses and to be saints. Uh, I think that uh, whether you're a layperson or a religious or a priest, that it's uh, it's just important to hear that basic message of the council. That you know that the mission of the church is the mission that we all share, and and it has to be rooted in Christ and in prayer. You know, and the the sense of uh, we're not going to get there alone. Uh, that we're part of a people, the church, and that's a beautiful gift from the Lord. And that to grow an appreciation of that gift by really praying ourselves and studying our faith and really entering into the life of our parish or our 
you know, if we're part of a movement or a religious community, just to really give our whole hearts to that and because it's an exciting time and that we all share in being witnesses. I think that's the other big thing, that uh, whether we're witnesses in the world through our employment or in our homes, that we are to be the leaven of the gospel. We are to be witnesses, not just by preaching, but by our whole way of life. And I think Vatican II really gave us sort of a big vision. I think that's the most important thing about Vatican II is, is, uh, is uh, getting familiar with it so that we can really live that faith more fully in the world, whether, you know, whether we're called to be uh, 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 priests or religious or whether we're called to be, as myself, a father and a husband and a, you know, uh, out, uh, doing daily work in the world. Uh, keep in touch with what the, the 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 church is saying now. Like, listen to what Pope Benedict is saying in terms of just uh, trying to keep in touch with the current events because our recent popes have really uh, taught a lot of their teaching is based on the council. So even if you've never read Vatican II, if you sort of follow some of the main things that the pope is saying, uh, you will know what's really important for right now. And the other thing is study the catechism, because most of what's in Vatican II, uh, another way of finding out everything in Vatican II is really a lot of it is summarized in the catechism of the Catholic Church. Another way of getting Vatican II is either reading the catechism itself or the new compendium of the Catholic catechism, which is a nice summary of uh, the, the universal catechism, or or use other catechisms that are more popular, like I wrote a book called The Essential Catholic Catechism that is sort of boiling down the teaching in the catechism, because uh, I would say, um, well, there are about 800 uh, references uh, to Vatican II in the New Catechism, <laughs> which goes to show that uh, these are really important uh, sources. So if you, if you know your catechism, you're going to know Vatican II, because <laughs> it's all in there, really. Okay. So that's my last advice. So thanks, Chris, for uh, inviting me to share with, with uh, the people in your diocese, and I wish them God's blessings. Well, thank you, Dr. Shrek, and thanks for sharing your expertise about the Council. Okay. All right. God bless. God bless you. So that's the interview with Dr. Shrek, and if you have any questions about the interview or anything else uh, that we've addre- addressed or discussed on Prairie Rome Companion, I encourage you to send me an email at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. That's C-B-U-R-G. W-A-L-D at sfcatholic.org. And as always, if you have any ideas or any topics that you'd like us to address, and happy to hear those, we do. I do hope to address a number of uh, various topics in the upcoming weeks. But if there's anything you want to hear about, please let me know. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and may God bless you.